Good morning. I see a couple of you are awake today. Uh, it's a joy to be back with you once again. Uh, I don't know if, how many of you were here last time that I had the privilege to speak, uh, but um, we are grateful for the opportunities that, that Will and Mark and Joshua have given us to, to be a part of 121, and, and even more than that, to, to be a part in this way, to be able to share the Word of God with you. Uh, unfortunately, this time, my wife is able to be with us, so I'm thankful for that, although I guess she's not with us at the moment. But uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, how many of you weren't here the last time I spoke? About three weeks ago? So there's a few of you that may not know who I am. My name is Randy. Um, I am um, right now, um, I guess I've been a pastor for, in some sense, for the last 18 years, currently not serving in a church, uh, working actually with Brock uh, over at IES. Brock keeps an eye on me. I have known several folks here for some time, uh, at least since 1999. I've known the Callahans, and sometime after that, the Shotwells and, and, and the Pierces and, and Michelle Paisley, but not Paisley anymore. And so we, we, we have a connection with you guys uh, even before we began to come here, but we moved back from New Orleans uh, back in uh, August, and so this is where we, we've been attending when I wasn't preaching. So again, the opportunity to be with you and to worship with you has been a joy. And so this, this morning, I want to take uh, or turn our attention now to the Gospel of Mark once again. Um, as we pick up where we left off, I think, at the, the, last, the last week of uh, November, um, before the Advent season. So we're, we're back in Mark, uh, beginning with chapter 2. And so I want to, to turn our attention there with the prayer that, um, in spite of me, that God will, will, will draw your attention to the Word and that the word itself will magnify God and his glory in your hearts this morning. And, and so that's our desire, that's our goal, as we, as we peer into this narrative that Mark has recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for, for a purpose, a purpose for his original audience and a purpose for you and I here this morning, that we might garner some um, glimpse of God and his glory as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this particular narrative, this is probably one of the more familiar narratives in the Gospels. Uh, a lot of people, at least have been a part of church for some time, have heard this story in some sense. Um, however, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that probably more often, at least in my experience, I've heard this, this narrative uh, conveyed kind of out of its context. It's kind of one of those narratives that, that makes a great story standing alone. Uh, but unfortunately, when we look at this narrative outside of its context, uh, where Mark has placed it, uh, then we tend to, to gravitate towards maybe a particular issue in this passage that really isn't, I don't believe, I don't believe Mark has presented to be the central theme. And so I kind of want to go beyond that, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments, uh, and try to point us to what, in fact, is the particular thing that, that Mark is seeking to convey to us as he unpacks this gospel of Jesus. Um, in fact, as we go back and we consider what we've seen in chapter 1, you know, Mark introduces this gospel as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus the Messiah, and then he adds to that Son of God. So he very quickly informs, of, informs us who it is that he's speaking of. And then he introduces, as we, we've read there in chapter 1, some, some Old Testament text in which to to kind of uh, point us in the direction in which he's going to then begin to unpack this, this gospel of the Messiah. He includes from a, a passage from Isaiah and a passage from Malachi. 
Um, and he talks about the fact that, you know, th- these Old Testament passages established, first of all, John the Baptist as the forerunner declaring uh, something that was to come. So these Old Testament scriptures basically give validity to the words of John. And so then John comes on the scene as the one, the voice crying out in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. And so that path, which is now going to be unpacked by Mark throughout the gospel, that 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 way of the Lord is the mission that Jesus is on. And that's what Mark wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to, to merely peer into his story and find something we can gravitate to that makes us feel good in a particular moment while we may very well find that. But he wants us to see the fullness of the gospel as he unpacks it step by step. And, and so as we're still at the beginning of that gospel in chapter 2, we need to be careful not to jump too far ahead because in jumping ahead and importing things that are developed later into this passage might cause us to miss uh, what it is that Mark wants to, to hold forth as the very thing he wants us to walk away with. So throughout chapter 1, we've seen Jesus held forth as one who teaches with authority, unlike the scribes. He's, he's unique in that way. He's one who, who is performing these miracles. He's casting out demons. He, he's healing the sick. He's, he, he's healing those who are diseased. And then at the end of chapter 1, we saw a couple weeks ago, he, he then specifically heals this leper where we find Jesus at the end of the story of chapter 1, residing outside the camp, having fulfilled the law in this sense, and then bearing the curse of the law. And so when we get to chapter 2, what's now happening is, Mark begins, now after some days, and it may very well be that after the days that would been would have been required by the law to reside outside the camp for one who has touched a leper. After some days, Jesus enters again into the public arena in Capernaum. And so now we could say in our, in our perspective, he's now come back on the scene uh, very openly uh, to continue this, this mission, which Mark is unpacking for us, this mission that's going to lead to something very significant. And what we find in this particular narrative is that, that Mark highlights for us in this story the very purpose of Christ that is held higher than anything else that Christ may very well do while he's on the earth. For individuals in this life, he holds forth something that's much grander than anything that could come our way in this temporal life, even that would make our lives better or make us feel better about life now. While Jesus does those things, there's something much more important. So this is what he's trying to unpack for us. But again, I want to go back to the fact of looking at this passage out of context. It's kind of like, as we see Mark unpacking this person, this uniqueness of Jesus, uh, think about it this way. I don't, again, I can't speak of your experience. I can only speak of my experiences. But from the time I became a believer in 1990, uh, somewhere around there, I have been taught how to share the gospel. I've been, I've been uh, made to feel that that's a very, pretty important thing. And, and so much so in the circles I run in that, you know, sharing the gospel is something so important that we were taught in certain ways to, to, to convey that message. You know, things like uh, uh, evangelism explosion or uh, the Romans road or maybe if you want to be real simplistic, the ABCs uh, of the gospel, so to speak. And in all those things, not that those things in themselves are bad, but what what I've seen is that we try to take the gospel and then we say something like we give a few truths like the Romans road. We take a few verses and say, oh, you're a sinner uh, and sin has a cost to it. And that cost is death, which is separation from God. And and when we get to that end of that, we've said a few truth statements. And then we say, but if you want to be saved, just you just need to pray and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. 
But what's left out of all that, what's, and I'm not saying these methodologies force you to do this, but what happens is we circumvent the unpacking of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because without the unpacking of who Christ is, all those things ultimately become meaningless. They just become jumping through hoops. I mean, you tell somebody who's in a bad situation, hey man, just ask Jesus in your heart and he'll save you and your life will be changed forever. Is that true? Well, yes, but who is Jesus? It's not just in this magical term, Jesus, that we say these magical words, or as I experienced, uh, the, my first impact with the gospel was a man leading me through a particular prayer of which I knew nothing about. I just said these words, and then I was told I was saved. And, and the reality was, that was the beginning of me starting to peer into the gospel and then realizing who Jesus was. And as a result of that, my life was changed. My heart was changed. And so when we take things out of context, and I I would say all that to say this passage we're looking at, we do the very same thing. If we try to take this passage and focus in on what most people would say, uh, a good title for the sermon would be a faith of a few good friends. You heard that one before? And and the focus is all about the faith of these friends, which I'm going to argue is not Mark's point in this passage. But if we do that, we're going to go astray. We're going to miss the most important thing, the very unpacking of who this is all about. Uh, The person whom you and I, whether you're an unbeliever today or whether you have been changed by the the glory of God and his grace, uh, we continually need to be reminded of. And that is the depth of the person and the work of this one we call our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we look into this text, what I want to do is I just want to highlight five observations that that I've made as as I've I've worked through this text. And I hope will not necessarily uh, cause you to walk out here and go, okay, but rather make you walk out of here and go, man, I want to dig into that a little bit more so that the Holy Spirit might enlighten my heart even more. And so my prayer this morning is that as we peer into this text, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, along with the word of God, that you will be encouraged that you will be challenged if you're an unbeliever, that you will be deeply convicted of your sin. Uh, but, but I guess for the believers mostly that you will be so impassioned about this particular word and want to go to this more and allow God to speak through it to your hearts. Let me give you the five observations that I want to walk through as we go through this text. They're very simple, nothing deep whatsoever. But number one, Jesus' priority was revealing the word of God. Number two... Faith was the vehicle of Jesus' response. The key word there being vehicle, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Number three, Jesus acted as God. Number four, Jesus revealed his authority. And number five, Jesus sought the glory of God. So let me pray before we dive into these five things. And very simple, I think, but very important, significant truths as we continue through this gospel that Mark has recorded for us. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for the grace that you have granted to each of us. Uh, Grace that we've recently celebrated in the Advent season with the coming of our Savior uh, that that changes everything for us. Uh, And Father, we celebrate that this morning as we corporately gather to to worship and sing songs about the the wonderful truths of our Savior. And as we now sit and and engage actively in the the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray that, Lord, you you would affect our hearts, you would affect our minds as a result, and that, Lord, we would not leave here exactly the same way we came in today, but that we would leave here uh, having been impassioned to the word and to the gospel and to our our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we'd be compelled to live in such a way that would magnify the glory of God wherever we may find ourselves this afternoon, 
and the rest of the week in our lives, wherever we may be. So, Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, and then ultimately a heart that gladly and joyfully embraces the the glorious truths of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing I want us to look at is that Jesus' priority in his mission that Mark is unpacking was, in fact, the word of God. And as I even make that statement, I mean, my mind immediately goes to John's gospel because you're probably familiar with John chapter 1 where in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God in verse 14 and the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Otherwise, Jesus was the word being unpacked in real life in a way that you and I can, can relate to as human beings. And, and so as Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't come on as some elitist in any way, but rather as as one of us who then in life, in real life, unpacks for us through word and deed, the very word of God. And this was his priority. In fact, as we come to chapter two of John or Mark's gospel, he reminds us that now when 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 Jesus or he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was in a house. And in verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And here's the key statement of that entire part of Scripture at the end of verse 2. And he was speaking to them the word. Now, interestingly enough, you know, this is Jesus we're talking about. You know, we're looking back, so we want to import a whole lot of stuff in this. But we understand that this is God. This is what Mark is unpacking. This is God in the flesh. But in reality, you would think, or at least if if I was him, you know, like it would be a dog and pony show. I mean, if I could cast out demons and I could heal lepers and I could heal other kinds of diseases, I mean, that's I would get everybody's attention this way. But what we find out throughout the gospel is that that's not where Jesus goes. You know, in fact, most places we get it backwards. Do we not? I mean, a lot of churches, what they do is that we got to do something appealing to the world to get them in there so we can cram the word of God in their in their ears. And when they, even when they're not even interested whatsoever. And so we do something that is worldly appealing to get them there to get them word. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus does. And we find that Jesus in chapter one, what was he doing? He was in a synagogue and he was teaching the word. And then as a result of the word being taught, in comes a demon possessed man. And then he does this miraculous thing that people go, wow. About And in the same in the same way, in chapter two, we find Jesus reentering the public arena. What does he do? He doesn't go in walking through town, you know, waving his hands and curing all diseases. He goes and he teaches in a mundane place in a house the word of God. This was his mission to unpack the word. And, And as a result of the of the speaking forth of God's word, it bore fruit in such a way that marvelous things took place. And so as we look at that from our context today, none of us are Jesus, not in in person, but we are to to emulate in a sense uh, the the ministry that Jesus has taught us to. And that would be that our goal as believers, as a church, is not to go and and design the gospel the way we think it's going to work in our culture. I understand the reality of being culturally relevant to some extent. But the reality is we, we kind of want to be culturally irrelevant. We want to be counterculture in many ways. We want to go into the culture, meet them where they are, and change it. But we don't do that by being like them, making appeals to the world in some way so that we can then cram the gospel in, in their ears when they're probably not paying any attention because all they're interested in is the dog and pony show. In reality, what Jesus t- teaches us to do is that we need to make the priority the word of God. 
It is our goal to, to, to speak forth this word. Not my opinions, not your opinions, not what we'd like to hear, but the word. That's the reason why you guys go through uh, past, or books of the Bible so that you don't get to set your own agenda. The word sets the agenda. And, and so we make the word priority. And we do that just for the same reason Jesus did, that his mission made clear that it is the word of God revealed in the hearts of men by the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to change anything. That's our hope. Our hope is not in how impressive you can be or how impressive I can be, how captivating or, or, or wowing or amazing we might be able to be to somebody so that we can somehow convince them to be like us. Our hope is in the priority of the word when spoken, doing something that you and I could never do, and that is changing lives eternally. As that word is proclaimed, as we speak forth these words and, and we say things like Jesus' priority was the word of God. And so therefore it is the word that's going to make the difference in our lives. It's the word that's going to make the difference in this church. It's the word that's going to make the difference in this community. As we find ways to boldly go forth and speak forth the word of God, trusting that it's the word, not our ability, that's going to transform lives. Jesus' priority was the word. Now... I don't want to undermine the reality that there is a place for experience and emotion. God has given us those things as well. And so, but those things must submit to the unchanging objective truth of God's word. So we don't take experience and, and those kinds of things and let that set the agenda. And what that would look like in a church is, well, what works? Look around you in society and go, well, what really works? And then decide what we're going to do. No, we look at the word and we say, what does the word teach us to do? And we're going to set our agenda in that on that standard. And then through that, we will have experience that God will reveal to us as we're moving through that. And we're being faithful to the word of God. Our priority, like Jesus, must be to be faithful to unpack, to reveal the unchanging objective truth of God's word. And the fruit of that will be some amazing experiences as we experience the glory of God and his grace that is so amazing that, that really we can't put words to it. That's the result of the word. It is not the thing that we do in order to give the word some kind of impact. The word itself is powerful. In fact, as we're seeing, that Jesus Christ is the word himself. And so Jesus' priority was the word. Number two, faith was the vehicle of Jesus' response. As Mark continues through this narrative, he tells us, he gives us a setting. Jesus is in a house and he's speaking the word. This is his plan. This is what he's intending to do. And as a result of him being there, there's these people. We don't know how many. Most people say four, but there's actually more than four. It says that they came bringing this paralytic who was being carried by four. And then they can't get into him. So this is our the setting, the context of what's about to happen. And then... As they go through the efforts that they go through, because, I mean, after all, they, they believed that Jesus could do something miraculous. What did they believe Jesus could do? They believed Jesus could heal this man. And they obviously like this guy and they want him healed. So they, they go into the roof, they tear open the roof, they lower him down so that Jesus could heal him. And then the Bible tells us, Mark tells us that seeing their faith or beholding their faith, Jesus responds. Now, again, if we're not careful, this is where we will rest. 
But the reality is, at this point, this is the second mention of faith in Mark's gospel. The first mention was as a result of his introduction that the the time is fulfilled, the, the kingdom of God's here, it's at hand. Therefore, our response should be to repent and believe or have faith in the gospel. That's the first mention. And now this is the, the next mention of faith whatsoever. So there is an introduction of faith, but understand that Mark does not unpack what faith is, biblical faith is all about here. He merely uses it as a catalyst into this story. It definitely raises a question, a question that Mark doesn't answer. Because if we take this out of its context and we major on this faith issue right here, the conclusion we might come to is that as long as mom and dad had faith, then hey, I'm good, Right? Faith of a few good friends, as long as my, my buddies are good believers, then somehow through that, I'm going to be good. And we know that's not the reality of the gospel. As the gospel is unpacked for us, we know that it's personal faith uh, that makes a difference. But also, we might come to understand that it is faith that causes God to act. And I would argue that that is not the case either. Now, it's a difficult scenario to figure out how that works. But what we come to understand is that faith is the vehicle through which God works But faith is not something we muster up. It's not like we go to our buddies and we encourage them enough and we're dynamic enough or exciting enough that they suddenly go, oh, I want to have faith. And then as a result, God's, oh, okay, well, I'll save this guy. No, that's not it. In fact, the Bible teaches that even faith itself is a gift from God. So God gives through truth. He does something in our life that then the, the result of that is faith being awakened in our hearts. And then through that, God works miraculously. But again, in this story, if we major on the faith itself as it's presented to us right here, and we import stuff that's not in this story here, then we come up with kind of a lacking theology of faith. Now, I don't want to undermine faith in this story. Faith definitely has a place in this narrative, but that place right now is merely the catalyst to the greater issue here. Because Mark's focus is still not on Other people, just like it was in the previous story, the focus wasn't on the leper himself, it was on Jesus. The same is still true. Mark's still establishing the foundation of the person and the work of who Jesus is because this is eternally important. Knowing who Jesus is beyond a name, beyond a holiday season, is essential in being a believer. Believing in Jesus, it's believing in his person, who he is, and what he is doing or done and is doing. And so it's more than that name. And so that's the reality here is it's not the faith where we want to focus on other than the fact that it raises the question of the connection of faith to what Jesus is about to do, which Mark will later help us to more fully understand. But we want to wait till Mark unpacks that for us. And we want to focus now on what the major issue in this narrative is. But we can say for certain that that Mark does two things with the introduction of faith, especially in connection about to what's about to happen. That is, number one, that it raises the question, what part does faith play in this gospel idea? Uh, what is this all about? Faith definitely is there. We see that, but again, we don't see its fullness unpacked yet. But then number two, it definitely shows us that faith in some way is a catalyst or a, not a catalyst, that's not the right, a vehicle through which God will work out his purposes in the lives of people. And that, again, we will see more and more as, as you work through this gospel of Mark and through the rest of the New Testament as well. But faith has a place, but it is not the place we want to rest at this moment. In fact, we want it to be the springboard to which we get to what is most important. And that brings us to number three, uh, the third observation, which is simply Jesus acted 
as God. And this is the irony of the story. This is the the punchline of the story because they bring this guy, they lower him in. And again, the question is why? We understand they brought him because they believed Jesus could heal him physically. That's what they likely wanted. That's what they had seen and heard Jesus doing previously in Capernaum and in other places in Galilee. And now this is why they bring this guy. But with an unexpected twist, they lower this guy and it tells us Jesus beholding their faith heals this man. No, that's not what happened. That's what you would expect to happen. But instead, Jesus makes this pronouncement. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Now, that might not sound odd to us because we kind of throw away and throw around terms like that with with no impact. But in a context here, for him to speak that, that was a huge deal. In fact, we're told that in the next scenario because Mark turns our attention. He says, now... And he gives us the further unpacking of the reality of what's going on. He says, now there were some from the scribes, you know, the the guys that Jesus taught with more authority than. There were some from these scribes who were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts. They weren't saying anything. They were kind of murmuring maybe. But in their hearts, silently at this point, they were questioning, saying, and this is the unpacking of the questioning in their hearts. What is this that he's speaking? He's a blasphemer because no one can forgive sins And literally it says, except for one, comma, emphasis, God. It's very clear. There's not but one person, without exception, who can do that. And guess what? We're posed with a dilemma. Because you walk away from that statement having to assume one of two things. Exactly what they said. These opposers, the opposition, the ones that reveal the truth of Jesus to us, right? They say, number one, he's either a blasphemer. You have to believe that or only one other option because there's not but one who can forgive sin. And who is that? God. So if Jesus, therefore, is forgiving sin, then he's either a blasphemer or, wow, he's God. And so through the the murmurings and the questions of these these unbelieving scribes, these religious elite who know their Bibles, so to speak, this truth is, is laid out there for us. Kind of, not, not really veiled, but kind of almost in a passing sense, but it's laid clear. He's either a blasphemer or he in fact is God because what he just did is something that only the one God can do. And so if what he just did is true, then there's no way we can argue anything else but the fact that this man, this person who's named Jesus, that he is not just some unique man, he's not just some guy with some special powers, but he, in fact, is God himself. And guess what? If he is, that changes everything. I mean, there's some people who can do some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, you probably know some people who are pretty amazing in your eyes. Uh, And maybe throughout time, we see it in the New Testament, there's other people who, who did some healing and things like that. But, There isn't but one who can do this thing right here. And that is God himself and Jesus. This man, this unique person, is now, by his act, declaring himself to be the one and only true God. Again, the word became flesh and dwelt in the midst of us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if you read on through John chapter 1 to verse 18... I love that phrase because it says that this one Jesus, he literally, he exegetes God for us. 
He, he reveals in his very person God himself. Why? Because he himself is God. So Jesus acted as God. You've heard people say, you know, you know, you either have to determine that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, right? You've heard that old saying, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He either lied about what he thought he was, he either was a lunatic and believed himself to be, but really was it, or in fact, he was God himself. He was the Lord. And this is exactly what Mark t- teaches us here. In the same way, except for, instead of liar, lunatic, and Lord, he's either a blasphemer or he is God himself. So Jesus is in his person. He is God. Fourth observation we want to see, that Jesus reveals his authority. So in the midst of this narrative, as, as this is going on, he forgives sin. The unexpected wasn't what they expected, which, again, backing up just for a second, gives us a correlation between faith in some sense and not healing, but forgiveness, which is going to be way more important than the other stuff. Mark's introducing that to us. He now moves on through this fact that Jesus, uh, he's, he's, he's acting like God. So the narrative then tells us that Jesus, and it says, depending on your translation, knowing or perceiving in his heart, in his spirit, I'm sorry, that they were questioning this in their heart. Now, that's just another cloaked statement to back up what we've just heard. That either is blasphemer or is God. But now Jesus, knowing, this is something he knows, without being told, seems to sound like something God could do. He knows in his spirit that these guys are questioned so much so that he can respond to them specifically. And, and, I, and just to add to that, I love the way he, Mark records this because he throws in that one little term there that I talked about in my last sermon. That euthus in Greek, it's, it's immediately or straightway. I told you in the last sermon, this was Mark's way of unpacking the mission of the Lord. In the wilderness, a voice crying in the wilderness, uh, make a straight the way of the Lord, make his path straight, straight, unveiling, unpacking. Here, Mark puts that same term just as another indicator that this, what's going on here is unpacking the reality of Christ. And straightway, Jesus knowing that they were doing, thinking these things in their hearts, he responds. And how does he respond? He says, which is easier? Is it easier to forgive sins or heal a man? Well, from our terms, it'd be much simpler to, to say your sins be forgiven. But what's implied here, when, it, when Jesus says, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal this man, the implied answer is, well, of course, physical healing would be much easier because only one can do it, can forgive God, uh, forgive sins, and that's God. So the answer here, what it moves us to is, is that Jesus says then, so that... Catch that. So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, then what does he do? He does what they expected. So what we see in the picture is, again, get the big picture. Jesus is teaching the Word. He's revealing the Word of God, which is the the very thing that changes hearts and lives. He's doing this, and as a result, this narrative begins to take place, this unfolding, unpacking. They bring this guy. they, They bring him to be healed. Jesus says... Sin's forgiven. Dilemma. Only God can do that. But Jesus then uses this situation to say, so that you will know that the Son of Man, let me retranslate, is God who can forgive sins. I will do this. Now you see this, what happens, this miracle becomes the fruit of the other. It's not the appeal. It's not the catalyst upon which everything hangs. It's not, you know, we don't perform miracles so that people go, Oh, okay, but rather it's the outworking of who Jesus is. So he then 
speaks to this man. What does he say? He says, get up, take your bed and go home. And Jesus performs this miracle so that, I mean, it's something he's done before, right? He's done it before. People have seen him perform miracles. So that's nothing new in itself, except for it's the outworking of what he has just proclaimed. Your sins are forgiven. And so now that in tandem becomes the evidence or an evidence, not the definitive in itself, but an evidence of the fact that what Jesus just did does in fact declare him to be God himself. And that Jesus as such, God in the flesh, has the authority, just like God, because he is God, to declare upon the earth that sin. And again, what this does for us and just for all the audience of that day, the audience as Mark records this gospel for us, it begins to zero us in more on Jesus himself. Not on what he's doing, uh, not on the peripheral stuff, but not on us mustering up faith. You know, the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can. So maybe God will do something in response. No, it's, it's on who Jesus is. The very word of God become flesh and, and diving into that deeper and deeper because that's what transforms lives. Jesus is unpacking through his life and Mark through his gospel, unpacking that reality so that we can see that Jesus has authority upon earth. And that's true today to forgive sins. And he is the only one as God who has the authority to forgive sins. Nothing else. No one else has the authority or the ability to remove sins from us. The very thing that is our greatest dilemma, but Jesus alone. So in order that his audience and for us reading this narrative to see that Jesus is, in fact, the one who has that sovereign authority over sins, over the death, over the grave. Jesus performs this miracle. And that brings us to the last observation. And that is that Jesus sought the glory of God. Because as we come to the close of this narrative, what we find is that when Jesus declares for this man to pick up his bed and and, and go home, it says that, uh, and he arose... And straightway picked up his bed and he went out before them all. So in the presence of all that were there, he he does this thing. He's healed. It's very evident that he's been healed. And it says, so that. this This was the purpose. This is the intent. So that all were caused to be amazed and caused to glorify God saying, we never saw anything like this. Which is an interesting statement. So. The bottom line is that from the very beginning, Jesus sitting, teaching the word of God, uh, the trajectory from the, from the start of unpacking God's word is God's glory. And, and through the unpacking of the word and through the circumstances, the fruit of that teaching and what's going on, Jesus then brings the audience to the point of being amazed. And that amazement, not just being the kind of amazement you and I might experience in a general situation in life today, but an amazement that leads to the glory of God is truly giving glory to God. And what's interesting is that last statement. We never saw anything like this. And, and the reality is, I want to go, yeah, they had. Jesus had performed miracles. He'd already, he'd done it in Capernaum. He'd done it throughout Galilee. I mean, and word had gone out. I mean, the leopard had a big mouth, right? So people were hearing. So what do you mean? We never seen anything like this. Well, I would argue that obviously they're not speaking about the physical healing. They're pointing right back to the connection of that healing that magnifies and gives testimony to the pronouncement that Jesus made. Son, your sins are forgiven. In connection with what the opposition raised, only one can do this. So they never saw anything like that. So it seems 
maybe not in clarity or full worked out theology, but those who were in present, they were at least kind of going, he just might be God. It's just, it might be possible that we've just witnessed God speak louder than we've ever heard him speak before. He forgave sins. He healed as an evidence or a fruit of that reality. And as this man walks out, they are forced, they're caused, and, and, the, and the text literally says they're caused to be amazed and to give glory to God. And what that brings us to understand is that when we make the word of God priority and we allow experience to flow out of the foundation of the clear, unchanging truth of God's word, that the result of that will be God's glory. That was Jesus' mission. And that's our mission to to unmask, to unveil to an unbelieving world living in darkness. The reality that Jesus Christ was the word made flesh, that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, the one who had sovereign authority over sin, death and the grave. And the only one who can free us all from the greatest dilemma that any person living on the face of this earth will ever experience. And that is the bondage to sin. So when we. As believers, being faithful to the word, begin with the priority of the word is Jesus. And we hold forth that word with our faith in that word, the word of God, not in our ability, not in our coolness and in our programmatic ways or our differences of not being programmatic, but the word. And we hold that forth, allowing God to work through that word as he sovereignly does, that the end result will be God's glory. You ever ask that question? How can I bring God glory? Do you want to bring God glory? Is that at least a part, partial desire of your heart, battling even in the midst of the flesh? I'm going to say yes for you. I hope so. And so when we ask that question, how do we, want to, how do we give God glory? How do we bring God glory? And the ultimate answer, regardless of how that unpacks in our lives in different ways in this world, the answer is the same for all of us. It goes back to the word. The word. We hold forth the word. We do so in every way that we can. We make it priority just like Jesus did. And we allow the word to dictate the agenda. We allow the word to unpack experience and define the experiences that we're having rather than the other way around, allowing our experience to dictate what we do and what the word actually means. But the word, we hold it forth. We do so in our songs that we sing. We make sure that the word is conveyed to the music. Even if the music, the issue is not whether the music is cool or not. The issue is the, the word being conveyed through the means that we use We hold forth the word just as Jesus did and allow God through that word to unpack himself by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in the hearts of those who are in our audience who are sitting around, believers and unbelievers alike. The word will do its work. And that's what we want to hold forth. And Mark shows us that this word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, is the one we hold forth. Jesus is the word. He is the very truth of God. He is the gospel. And so it might sound trite, it might sound simplistic, but our job, and Mark is telling us this, is Jesus holding forth. Look at Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. And my job as a believer is to to unpack Jesus in word and deed, in the way I live, and even the way I fail, to, to try to unpack Jesus in every way, point people beyond me, in spite of me, in spite of you, to the one unchanging truth That is the gospel, that is Jesus, who is God, who became man on our behalf in order that his mission might end in the greatest mission of all times. And that is to free 
sinful human beings who are undeserving and completely incapable of doing anything about their sin to free them from that sin. Especially when they're not looking for it. Because there's not a person in this room, no matter what you think, who is looking to be freed from your sin. You are happy in the bondage of your sin. You are, you are mastered by it. And you may think you looked for Jesus. You, you may think the way it began. And it may look that way when you give your testimony. Because it often does. But the reality is that Jesus' word, the word in your heart, did something that changed you. And the response that you gave was one of amazement and glory to God. Jesus gave priority to the word. He used faith as a vehicle to unpack truth. He acted as God. He declared his authority upon earth over sin. And he sought the glory of God. And it's my prayer this morning. That God's word will rest in your hearts. That it will in fact convict you and me both. As we think about how little we do these very things. We live in consistent with what I've just said. And that we'll be compelled to walk out of here and allow God's word to, be, word to be priority and to dictate our lives and our decisions and everything that we say and do. And that we will seek to unpack Jesus for who he is and what he has done and not what we try to make him be or make him look impressive in a particular situation, but who he is. We don't need to add anything to it. And I pray that that will be our passion, that that will drive everything we do. Hold forth the word. Because holding forth the word is holding forth Jesus, which is holding forth the very gospel of God. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. I know, Father, as we look to the word that there's not a one of us has complete understanding. But I pray that, again, in spite of this fallible messenger, Lord, that you would use these words to challenge our hearts and, and convict us and compel us to be faithful adherers to the only thing that will ever change anything in this world. And that is the word that you have left for us because that word is what reveals the gospel who is Jesus to us and to a lost and dying world. So Father, as we continue even this morning to, to experience the, the or celebrate the Christmas season, I pray that we wouldn't merely celebrate the baby in a manger, but what that pointed to, which was something much grander. That was the, the coming of God in the flesh in this world for a purpose, for a mission. And that mission was to reveal the word, the word made flesh, to unpack him to in a world of darkness, to people who aren't looking, who can't see no matter what we do. But in so doing, that very word began to shed such light and open eyes. Father, we want to be a part of that. We want to see uh, things like the stories we've heard. That as we go forth and live the gospel in the community around us, that we do so in such a way that we see amazing things. We see eyes literally open spiritually and, and completely transformed as a result of the word being taught and declared. And Jesus being held forth as the only one, the only way that any life will ever be eternally changed. I pray, Lord, that we would empty ourselves of all our agendas and all our, what we try to bring to the gospel to make it worth sharing. And that we allow the sovereign Lord, 
Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who has authority over all things to be magnified. And that the result, regardless of what we see in the moment, we pray that the result would be the magnificent glory of God. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.